And I want to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles uh, to Philippians chapter 2. We're continuing in our series on uh, joy for the world. Uh, one of the things we remarked in the first service was just uh, despite the fact that we're we're kind of in between uh, worship directors right now, and uh, we're, we're sort of cobbling together these, these orders of worship each, uh, each Sunday, and I'm so thankful for our worship team members and AV team members for kind of keeping us glued together. Uh, while we're waiting for Taylor McPherson and his family to come, uh, just an update on them. They've closed on their house in Nashville, hoping to close on their new home here uh, locally by the end of the month, and uh, who knows, we'll, we'll see them soon, we hope. Uh, but please continue to pray for them. They've got so much uh, transition and, you know, three young kids. So it, it's a lot, but thanks for your prayers for them. Uh, but to just be reminded, even as we just sung, that, that God is our delight. When, you know, when our, our joy is in Him, He Himself becomes our reward. Like the pleasure that He receives from our delight in Him becomes a reciprocal reward. Uh, and I just love that even though we, we, in our own wisdom, wouldn't be able to link these things, uh, that song just flows so well into what we're going to be looking at right now in Philippians 2. So we're continuing this series, as I said, Joy for the World, looking at the places in Philippians where Paul just communicates what brings him joy. Uh, where is his joy found? How can we find our joy in the same things that, that Paul finds his joy in? Because that's going to have dramatic effects in our lives. So let's stand in honor of God's Word. I'm picking up in verse 12 of chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let me pray for us. Lord, indeed, we, we want that gladness and that joy to be ours. We want to uh, rejoice and be glad with Paul. More, more, more importantly, uh, we want to rejoice and be glad with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> I got this envelope in the mail, as sometimes we are prone to receive uh, mailings from different companies and organizations, kind of keeping us up to date on things that are going on, uh, people that we pay the bills to, like we get our internet through Lumos. And so uh, Lumos sent us this, this envelope. It says, Lumos Networks is now Lumos. Read more about the big news inside. <laughs> Open it up. Oh, here's, here's the big news inside. Read more. Lumos Networks is now Lumos. <laughs> I 
I guess that's it. Okay, well, that's, that's I, I guess that's big news. I, I don't know. That doesn't feel like big news to me. I, I, I get this, and I look at that, and I go, there was an entire board meeting. There's a marketing division. Like, they all sat down at these tables, and it probably took them months, right? And who knows how much money they spent on, on these mailings and this new campaign and stuff to just go from Lumos Networks to Lumos. Big news. And you wonder why people are depressed at work. And you wonder why people feel like this meaninglessness to their work. Like, what, is, what am I doing? And just grinding away like, okay, this is what my life is about. Can kind of relate to the preacher uh, or Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Uh, the whole book of Ecclesiastes begins with these words. Um, meaningless, meaningless is the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Lumos employees, amen. Uh, What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Jump down to verse 14. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Um, You know, there's that reaction, right, when our work feels futile. When we're, we're kind of putting in the hours, whether, I mean, you, you can work at home, you can work in an office, you can work on a, on a line, I mean, you can be retired, but if your days and your efforts feel meaningless, that feels terrible. And maybe you can relate to some, some little episodes where, where we get in on that sense of meaninglessness, where uh, somehow you, you're inspired, you want to cook just a nice meal. It's not, it's not gourmet, you know, nobody's going to write about it in, you know, a magazine or whatever, but you just want to make a nice meal for your family, you plan the menu, you go do the grocery shopping, you know, you've got it ready, it's dinner time, and, you know, nobody's home, and your spouse calls in, hey, I, I got to stay late, we're working on this big project, I'm sorry, I, 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 it was last minute, and I really apologize, but, okay, they're not home for this nice meal, the kids text in, hey, I got to stay late for practice, I got to stay late for the study group, whatever, and nobody's home. You've made this nice meal, and it's sitting there, and it's just getting cold. Like, why did you work so hard? Or maybe you're the spouse, right? You're at work, and, you know, you're putting in the extra hours. You are killing it, you and your team. You, you've been working months on this project, and then all of a sudden, kind of out of the blue, the powers that be, those higher-up, you know, people making the decisions say, you know what, we're going to go a different direction. And that project you've been working on, we're mothballing it. Sorry, you know. Or you're the kid who's texting in, you know, sorry, I'm going to be late for dinner. We got this study group. You've been, you've been cramming and really, really working hard, really applying yourself. We're going to, I'm going to nail this exam. I'm going to, I'm going to do well on this. Uh, not so much. You crash and burn, and it, like, you fail. And, and all, these episodes, you know, we, we can all relate to these. Like, you just go, what am I working for? What's the point? Like in, later on, second chapter of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, I hated life <laughs> because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. All of the sacrifices that are made that just seem to be vain. Um, can you relate to that? Can you relate to Solomon and his depression and his exhaustion? Why am I working so hard? 
Why am I making all these sacrifices? What is it for and, and is, it, is it worth it? Well, look at our passage here in Philippians 2. Uh, there's a, you know, we, we memorized this verse as a family and we sang songs to it. Do everything without complaining or arguing was the way it was translated when we memorized. But here in the ESV, it's do all things without grumbling or disputing, right? So what happens when nobody's home when you've got the dinner ready? Where is everybody? <laughs> what happens when the boss says we're going a different direction? I can't believe it. You're not, you know, honoring all my work. What happens when you've studied so hard and you still fail? Oh, I'm, I'm such a terrible mess or, you know, that test was too hard and how dare that teacher or whatever. Like, that's what we do. We complain and we grumble. When our work feels like it's in vain, we're going to do all things with grumbling and complaining. <laughs> Instead, what Paul's calling us to do is live this different kind of life where we're not working in vain. Hey, thanks for that. Where we're not working in vain, uh, where in verse 15, uh, Paul says that if you want to be different from the world, you want to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Uh, that's a weird description, isn't it? Like if you look at verse 15, is that, is that how you and I talk? Um, you know, so you can be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We don't talk that way. Well, truth is, neither did Paul. He's quoting Deuteronomy 32. And in Deuteronomy 32, there's this contrast between those that honor God and who worship Him and those who are kind of doing their own thing and living independently of God. Deuteronomy 32, God's a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, He's just and upright. But they, meaning the world or you know, these unfaithful people, have dealt corruptly with him, with God. They're no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Um, so there's the foolish and senseless people who are you know, characterized as this crooked and twisted generation doing their own thing, not living in fidelity with God, not giving him their attention, not living for his glory, but living independently of him. And Paul is saying, don't live like that, like a crooked and twisted generation. Instead, do everything without complaining or arguing or grumbling or disputing. And we can't do everything without grumbling or disputing, or, or disputing if everything we do feels like it's vanity and meaningless. We've got to get in on that sense of meaning and purpose for why Paul works so hard and why he sacrifices so much. Real vanity ultimately is just turning our backs on God and working independently of Him. So if we don't want to work in vain, how can we work for, for real, substantial, eternal gain? What if there was a way of working and sacrificing that would guarantee that everything is always for gain instead of, instead of in vain? That would be pretty good. Look at verse 13, where Paul says, all right, here's, here's what I'm talking about. God's working in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When you have that orientation, that's going to make a difference in 
what you do from when you wake up in the morning to when you go to bed at night, and all of the work and all of the sacrifices that we're each called to make throughout the day. If we're aware that God is at work in us, both to will and to act for his good pleasure, that's going to change some things around. Um, there's a grammatical thing going on here that the commentators will, will point out that, that, that's helpful for us. Um, and I'm only going to I'm only going to illustrate it by comparing two different translations so that we can see, all right, without paying attention or getting bogged down in like the grammatical pieces, but the implication for two valid, valid translations, it's not like one's wrong and the other's right, but, but one's more helpful than the other. Now, the NIV in verse 13 talks about to, how God's at work both to will and to work to fulfill his good purpose. Good purpose is a very valid way to translate what's going on here in verse 13. But the ESV is translating it differently, right? It's not saying good purpose, it's saying good pleasure. And the difference is this, like there's one way of looking at these Greek words and you could validly translate them that like God's purposes are good and what he has in store for us is designed for our blessing. And we go, amen to that. We know that from other places in the Bible. That's true. What the ESV is saying is something that isn't always so apparent to us that's really, really valuable and important. And why I think it's a, it's a better, it's a more helpful translation. God's at work according to his good pleasure. Not simply according to fulfill his good purpose, but for his good pleasure. Why is that significant? Because God has a way of working that makes him happy. Like We're not so unaccustomed to the idea that there are certain things that we do that make God unhappy, right? Even, even you know, our neighbors in our community are aware through some kind of church background, and maybe it wasn't the healthiest church background, but, but isn't everybody kind of aware of this traditional, formal sense of Christianity where God's just unhappy with the things that we do, um, right? That, that's not a surprise for people to know. There are things that we can do that displease God, that make him unhappy, but they're not always so aware. Like the, the converse is also true, right? If there are things that we do that make him unhappy, then there are things that we do that can make him happy. Or we get involved in what brings good pleasure to God. He's at work in us to will and to act according to his good pleasure. And that can make a difference in how we get up in the morning and what we're exerting our energy uh, for and why we're doing what we're doing, etc. This is important because we forget that we can have a role, we can play a part in what makes the Lord of the universe smile. Listen to how Gordon Fee, one of um, the commentators who I, I really respect a lot, he describes what's going on here by saying that all that God does, he does for his pleasure. It's not just pragmatically part of his good purpose, but it really brings his heart good pleasure. All that God does, he does for his pleasure, but... Since God is wholly good, his doing what pleases him is not capricious, meaning like whatever, you know, instead what 
is wholly good for those he loves. God's pleasure is pure love, so what he does for the sake of his good pleasure is by that very fact also on behalf of those he loves. After all, it delights God to delight his people. It's a long way of saying that by translating it according to his good pleasure, it includes what we know to be true, the NIV saying, his good purpose. We know it's a good purpose, but it's not just utilitarian, you know, goodness. It really delights him. What would, what would it do to your sense of purpose as a student, as somebody on an assembly line, somebody in middle management, somebody in sales, somebody who's retired, what would it do to each and every day for you to wake up in the morning going, I have a choice in how I do what I do and how I exert my energy and what sacrifices I'm going to make today to either get in on what makes God smile or I can live the way the rest of the world lives and just do my own thing, according to a crooked and twisted generation, right? Like, can you think of anything more meaningful to do with your work, ultimately, than to be an ingredient in God's happiness? You could do any job, no matter how hard, no matter how dirty, no matter how the world might think it's just drudgery. You could do that and be satisfied. If you know what I'm doing is for the glory of God, it makes him smile. And you wouldn't complain or argue about it. You would do it with joy because it's a part of God's joy, right? And that's working for real gain. That's not in vain. And how, how, do, we, how do we do this? Well, um, we get a clue here in verse 12. Uh, Paul's saying, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's God who's working in you. There's a therefore in front of that. <clears throat> Pay attention to the therefores, they, they, they tell us in seminary classes. They tell you when you're doing small group Bible studies and so on, what, what's the therefore therefore? <laughs> it's to point you to the, the thing before that, that's the reason for why you're supposed to do what you're supposed to do next. And, you know, Tom Mirabella was here last week. He did an awesome job just opening up the earlier part of chapter 2. And how Jesus, you know, we're supposed to have that same mind in us that Jesus had, who didn't consider equality with God something to, to hold on to and feel entitled to possess, but instead he gave it up, you know, unloaded that, made himself nothing, took, in a, took a form of a servant, even, you know, became in our likeness in human form and became obedient, humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. And it's in light of that that we're supposed to be working out our own salvation. Jesus worked and sacrificed in order to save us. And we should be looking at our own work and our own sacrifices in light of how Jesus worked and sacrificed for us. That fuels how we get up in the morning. So that's one part of the therefore, but there's, a, there's another therefore in verse 9. In verse 9, the therefore isn't just for us, it's for God. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, chapter 2 says, Therefore God, in light of what Jesus has done, sacrificing and working on our behalf for our salvation, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So God's response to Jesus' saving work, the therefore for God, is that God exalts Jesus and he lifts up Jesus. And what does it mean for us to work out our salvation, the therefore for us? It's just to do, to do what God's doing in regard to his son. We get, we get a little nervous, those of us who understand that our, our salvation is by grace. It's free. It's not anything that we do by works so that none of us can boast. God gives us the forgiveness through Jesus on the cross by grace. It's free, and we don't earn it, right? So we get nervous when we read Paul saying, hey, now, now I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But we don't be nervous because all Paul is telling us to do is what God is doing before us. Because there's a therefore for God as much as there's a therefore for us in response to what Jesus has done. Therefore, exalt Jesus. Exalt the one before whom all nations are going to gather and bow their knee and confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord. The whole cosmos is going to do that. So do that in your own work. Whatever it is, whether it's domestic work or whether it's you know, out in the marketplace or whether you know, it's in a school or an educational environment, wherever, whatever, do what God does and, and exalt Jesus and, and help people point and, and point to the one who, before whom every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. He's Lord. Does your work, does what you do, is it done for his glory? Are you acknowledging he's Lord, I'm not? And I want the world to know that he's Lord and I'm not. And, and, and does the quality of our work and the manner in which we work, does it does it point to those true things? So Paul's just simply calling us to do what our Father in heaven is doing. Work out, live out your salvation in a way that remembers the infinite glory of Jesus before all nations, the world, the, the cosmos. Do everything for him, give everything to him. And therefore, you know, and Paul says in verse 16, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. That's why Paul isn't complaining. That's why he's not grumbling. That's why he doesn't feel like his work is in vain because he's doing it in light of the day of the Lord. He's doing it in light of that day when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. So that, that's, the, that, that's the, the mindset of, of Christians who are not going to be subject to, to complaining or arguing because we know our labor isn't in vain. So here, here's what this looked like for me a week ago. Um, one week ago, we were downtown at the Fall Foliage Art Festival, and we're doing part of our October outreach. We did this little art outreach. And, uh, and I'm doing this reproduction uh, of this painting. Can I get a painting, that picture up, John? Yeah, on the, on the left there is this painting called The Broken Picture by a French artist around the turn of the 20th century, uh, Bougereau, I think, if I'm pronouncing his name right. I'm, I may be butchering it. But what you can see in the image is it's this young woman, and she's at this well, and there's a you know, picture on the bottom right-hand corner, but you can't see the detail very clearly, uh, but there's a crack in that, in that picture. It's broken. It's you know, terracotta, you know, ceramic, and it's cracked. And the title of this painting is The Broken Picture. And this, this young woman is looking right at you, right at the viewer. And everybody at the turn of the 20th century, all of 
Bougereau's, you know, patrons and, you know, those who, who are part of that school of, of art at that time period would have known exactly what that broken picture represented. They would have looked at that image and said, he's telling me a story. The artist is telling me a story of a young woman who has lost her virtue. Who's lost her virginity. And was very, very likely exploited. There's a sadness in her eyes, a hollowness, and a pain. And she's looking at you going, are you going to engage with me? Are you going to do something about this? Or are you going to walk away? And this image was really pretty captivating to me because it reminds me of another woman at a well, right? So we're down there talking to people who are coming by, asking about, hey, what are you drawing? What are you drawing? And we would just be handing them, you know, these little flyers that talk about the painting and then include the section from John chapter 4 about how Jesus engages this woman at the well. He's a man. She's a woman. You shouldn't be talking to her by yourself. She's a Samaritan. She's a foreigner. And you're a Jewish man. And you're talking to her, right? And he doesn't treat her the way other men in her life have treated her have misused her and exploited her. And she's now on her sixth man that she's living with. Jesus isn't like other men. He's not going to sacrifice her to satisfy his own needs. He's not going to misuse her. He's not going to work her over to, for his own gain. But instead, he pursues her. And he loves her. And he renews her. And then she goes to the village and tells the whole village about this man who knows everything about me but didn't shame me. Who knows all about my life but doesn't condemn me. Could he be the Christ? So as we're talking to people about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sins, something else happened that was pretty funny to me. Let me see the next slide. So I'm drawing this thing, you know, and that's the finished page. The, the newspaper came along. We made the front page, y'all. That's kind of fun. And, and I think we're on the, and, on the front page because just people were, were really gravitated toward, I'm, I'm on my hands and knees in chalk taking the time and the energy and working hard and sacrificing you know, time in my back and my knees to make this image that every single person who came up to talk wanted to say, but it's just going to go away. It's, it's, it's chalk and it's going to wash away. And I mean, you could just the forlornness you know, on their face as they're just lamenting like it's so impermanent. And I'm going, yeah. And it was this awesome opportunity, not only to talk about the woman at the well in John 4, but to kind of stand up and have an excuse to stretch my back and go, look at all these other booths. Look at this oil painter. Look at the watercolor painter. Look at the ceramic person. And look at this metal worker. And look at this jeweler. Look at this person working in stone. Look at, you know, this craft person and this textile person. All these other art booths around. And I go, how permanent is their work? I mean, it just depends on the time frame, right? 
It just depends on what time frame you're talking about. Yeah, if you're looking at normal time, my work's going to be gone in a week. I mean, you could go downtown and maybe you'll see just faint little things. I put the picture on the bulletin from two days later and it's smudged and it's not very pretty anymore. But 20 years from now, what's going to happen to their work? 200 years from now, who's going to remember any of what these artists produce? The truth they were trying to tell, you know, the beauty they were trying to convey. Nobody. What, what's happened to all the watercolors and oil paint paintings hanging on walls of people out west in the wildfires this summer? What's happened to the metalwork and the ceramics of poor people in the path of uh, Hurricane Ian? Like, it's all temporary. Whose art was in vain? Mine only lasted a week, if that. All of it's in vain. If it's not done for God's goodness and his glory and his beauty and just for his praise. And it's all in vain if it's just done for what the artist wants to communicate and what the artist wants the world to know. Nothing is in vain if it's done for God's glory and for his praise. So as you're thinking about, like, what is my work for? What am I doing? Like, look at back to that Philippians, and we get how this works out in Paul's life. Because the context, the broader context for this book, you know, it's got so much joy in it. Paul's writing from prison. And it's not until the last chapter that you realize this is why he's writing. He's writing this letter to the Philippians as basically a long thank you note, four chapters long, thanking them for their financial support for his ministry and for you know, their provision, the provision they've made while he's in prison. Because in verse uh, 18 of chapter 4, Paul says, I've received full payment and more, and uh, I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And now, you know, you hear this like snick of the pieces coming together. Chapter two and chapter four. Paul talks about, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice, you know, sacrificial offering of your faith, you know, it's fine. What's their sacrificial offering? What sacrifice have they made? Money. They gave him money. And so Paul's saying, look, I don't know if I'm going to live or if I'm going to die. If I die, it's great. I'll depart and be with Christ. It's better by far. But I'm convinced I'm going to remain on your behalf. He's kind of got the sense from the Spirit that he's going to get out of jail. But he doesn't know for sure. So even if he dies, he's letting the Philippians know, your gift was not in vain. Your sacrifice was not in vain. Because you didn't give it to me. You gave it to God. You give $1,000, that's going to be a sacrifice for just probably everybody in this room. Maybe, maybe some of you are fabulously wealthy, and that's like, not a, not, you're not blinking. But for most of us, $1,000 is a big check. And suppose you write that check to a missionary, and you find out one week later that missionary died. Are, are you going to ask for a refund? What do you do? If I wasted that money, I'm not sure what happens here. 
Well, who did you give it to? If you gave it to God, it's not wasted. Let's up the ante. Your friend has got a lot of medical debt. You have some inheritance, some windfall. You write them a $10,000 check to get them out of medical debt. And a week later, they die. Was that in vain? Who did you give the money to? Now your friend, another friend, is in kidney failure. You're a match. So you donate a kidney. You give them a kidney. And a week later, the kidney's rejected and they die from renal failure. Was that in vain? Who are you working for? Who are you making your sacrifices to? Paul's telling the Philippians, if you're, if you're sacrificing to me, then yeah, it's in vain. But if it's to God, nothing's in vain. It all makes him happy. It's all a part of his good pleasure. So whatever you give to him, no matter how much work you do and no matter how many sacrifices you make, it's never wasted. And that's what brings gain to our lives and to our work, and that's what helps us have joy, kind of regardless of the outcome, right? Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 15, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always... Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And that's how you can have joy. <laughs> we looked at Paul talking to the Philippians, to the Corinthians. Let's wrap up with Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Your whole life is a sacrifice, dying to you know, the old essence and living in Christ, you know, becoming the new essence. And, and for each of you, you know, that, that applies as well. A living sacrifice. Everything you do is an offering to God. And therefore, it's not in vain. This is your spiritual worship. And that's how we're not conformed to this world. But we get transformed by the renewing of our minds, like how we're thinking about what we do with our lives and with our day and with our, our, the meals that you prepare that everybody's late for and the work that you do and the boss changes gears and the test that you studied for and it crashed and burned. It doesn't matter if you're working for the Lord, if those are sacrifices to him, he receives them and they make him happy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us a path uh, for joy, a path to participate in what gives you pleasure. Uh, thank you for giving us freedom from the world and how it operates. Thank you for forgiving us, for contributing to that uh, empty and meaningless and broken and crooked uh, mindset. Lord, thank you for dying for our sins and rising again so that we might have newness of life, so that we might... Uh, not be misused and exploited, but that we might be made new, that we might drink deeply from you, that we might know that your sacrifice is what makes our sacrifices uh, joyful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.